Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building that's like 120 yards away. What do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk's being 120 yards away to call anybody on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. Well, we record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't a podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts well. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by Go Hunt Maps. We've been using Go Hunt Maps since they started, providing them with our feedback and our ideas to add to their maps and their tools. So if you go to GoHunt.com and sign up for their Explorer Maps, you'll get all 50 states for the low price of $49. And by using promo code ELKTALK, they're going to give you $20 of credit in their gear shop that you can apply towards things you might want for this upcoming hunting season. GoHunt.com, Explorer Maps, promo code ELKTALK. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
Every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Morning, Corey. Howdy, Randy. How you doing over there? Well, I'm doing better than you, I think, from the sounds of it. You feeling any better? Well, I don't know what it is about Las Vegas. I was, you know, I was in Arizona helping my Uncle Larry, and RMEF said, hey, we're having Hunter and Outdoor Christmas down here in Vegas. Can you stop by on your way home? I'm like, yeah, I can do that. So I stopped into Vegas for a few days, and without fail... I came home with some new Vegas virus. Uh, For those wondering why it's been a delay, one, we had technology problems. And then this Vegas virus has had me bedridden for five or six days. So I may sound terrible, but man, do I feel better compared to about four days ago? Man, I'm I'm glad that's all you caught while you were in Vegas. (laughs) <laughs> well, I went and got tested, right? And today you, you just go get tested. So no COVID, no influenza A, no influenza B. I'm like, well, what do I got? They're like, I don't know, some strange virus. Go home and just monitor your symptoms. I'm like, well, <laughs> easier said than done. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, So I did. And as I'm laying there on the couch thinking, you know, this temperature of almost 101 and uh, all the things this is how people die. Uh, but if you survive it, just think about how strong your immunities are. So I started projecting out that if most of the world got wiped out by a virus, <coughs> the people who are going to survive to repopulate are the citizens of Vegas because they've been exposed to every viral infection in the world <coughs> because of all the the crazy travelers and the world's going to get repopulated with a bunch of transigent gambling, smoking, drinking risk takers. <laughs> so you that's, that, that's the Randy Newberg theory about, uh, if the world gets wiped out by a virus, not can, <laughs> the folks in Vegas are going to survive. They've, they've seen them all. Can you repeat the, the characteristics of those who will survive? <clears throat> The transigent, gambling, drinking, risk takers. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Who, that's who, the American who, dream. Right? Yeah. Who walk around with, remember in the 1980s, early 80s, John Travolta would walk around with like this silk type jacket, you know, I, there's a name for the fabric, whatever it is. <laughs> Those are still popular in Vegas. <laughs> Wasn't it last year in Vegas when you got sick? Oh yeah. Every yeah. time I go there, it's like, I'm, I, I, what I should do is, you know how, when you travel overseas, you get all these vaccines yeah, or vaccinations. I should, before I go to Vegas, I should do the same thing. <laughs> I mean, I've been coughing so hard. I feel like someone has taken one of those wire brushes that you clean out rust out of a pipe out of. I feel like that's what they did to my throat right now. Wow. And, uh, Yeah. But anyhow, that's not what the audience is here to listen to. <laughs> <clears throat> so if you guys hear me 
coffin here, you know, part of that's a family heritage. My grandma Harriet smoked four packs of Pall Mall non-filters every day. <clears throat> and uh, she smoked so much. On a coffin off, right? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, growing up, I didn't drive in a vehicle or walk into a household that didn't seem like a salmon smoking house. Or, you know, you'd, <laughs> if I went and slept in a little chief smoker, I'd probably have less uh, smoke effects than <laughs> what I had from the fact that everyone in my family smoked. So. <laughs> But grandma, grandma Harriet, they told her, you know, that stuff's going to kill you. Sure enough, it did. She died. She's almost 90. (laughs) 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 Her and grandpa Bob both, you know, they, they go buy Paul Mall, no filters by the carton. And, uh, the goal was that she wanted to smoke the last cigarette and she won. She, she outlived him by like three months. They both, wow. <laughs> they both died of consequences. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so uh, if you guys hear me coughing, don't worry about it. I feel really good. I uh, Fever's been gone for a few days. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, because of our technology problems and then me getting sick, uh, we aren't going to get this podcast loaded in time to tell the audience about the Alaska deadline of December 15th. <laughs> but did you notice we got some emails from listeners Yeah, of residents yeah. asking you about, hey, I'm thinking about applying for that hunt that you had. I don't know if it was the fact that it was so long ago that they've forgotten or if they just didn't hear our previous <laughs> podcast, but my answer is still the same. Don't do it. <laughs> there are way better things to hunt in Alaska than elk. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> that, it's weird that here we are in December uh, and it's already application season. I know. Wyoming's right it, around the corner. Arizona. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all yeah. coming up and, it just yeah. seems like hunting season just got over. Yeah. So I just got back from Arizona. Well, not just back, but, you know, that season ended December 1st, I think. Uh, and my Uncle Larry, who's 76, he he holds the tro- Traveling Profanity Award for the Fresh Trucks video platform. <laughs> uh, he was in fine form. Uh, and you aren't going to believe who I had to had to scrounge up for a camera guy well what's funny about that is when you said uncle larry was going and then you told me who was filming i thought oh that's just throwing gas on the fire there yeah i i felt like it was a daycare facility in my truck i couldn't imagine tie three arrow stubble field was the camera guy (laughs) (laughs) and uh if you know tie it doesn't take a lot to get him off the rails. Well, Uncle Larry, he the only time he gets on the rails is when he's crossing from one ditch over to the other. <laughs> <clears throat> so, man, do we have some video, Corey, that I'm going to have to find some adult platform I can put it on. <laughs> but uh, Uncle Larry ended up getting a nice six-point bull, though. How was the hunt? <clears throat> it was really good. Uh, you know, it's very classic for there, you know, you're, these are late season hunts. The elk are either going to be high up the mountain, down in the canyons or far from roads and trails. 
and uh there aren't a lot of places away from roads and trails in this unit uh they're all open to motorized travel so uh we pull up to the trailhead and there's this guy bryant from missouri bryant if you're listening uh man it was fun to run into you and we're both at the same trailhead and i'm like well which way are you going oh, i'm going this way i'm like okay we were gonna go the other way so that's good and uh, this was the scouting day and uh i told him i said you know if you show up tomorrow we'll already be here and this is the direction we're gonna go blah 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 uh so we kind of had coordinated <clears throat> well we were late getting out the door which that's not my style but i wasn't necessarily in charge of that uh and it had snowed about two inches so we walk in and bryant he's already been there and he's walking up the direction where he was going so we went our way and about 300 yards from this glassing knob i had walked out to on the scouting day uh we cross his tracks in the snow and i'm like oh dang it he beat us to it no biggie so we detour so we go do our our hunt for the day and uh we come back at dark to the trailhead and he shot like a 320 inch six point his first elk ever and uh he had to pack it out by himself he was (laughs) pretty exhausted already and he had only been able because he had to break it down by himself and then he got one load out that night super nice guy so happy for him uh and then so the next day we go out and when people see this footage it's going to give a lot of perspective of how different camera angles can be from the hunter angle or the shooter angle so we're walking through these old burns and and logging operations and all of a sudden there's a bunch of elk in front of us down in this little swale about 200 yards but we're in the wide open so me and larry jump behind one old burned out tree and ty is off to our right behind another one and uh this bull that larry ends up killing we this is the first time we'd seen him so he kills him the next day but on this day that bull is walking in and out of these cows sniffing them raking things and uh ty is like shoot and i'm like we can't there's cows in the way and ty's looking at me like come on or the bull you know his head sticking out from a tree but the the uh body the the vitals are protected by a tree it just the camera rolls for over 30 minutes (laughs) while this bull is doing this in front of us and larry he's having a conniption fit he's like okay and i look at ty and ty kind of hold his hands like no i don't have anything and uh so the bull ended up getting away because something came in from their left the wind was perfect for us and all of a sudden it sounds like a herd of bison running across the prairie there were about 150 elk in that herd we'd only seen the like 20 or 30 of them at the head of the herd and uh so it's going to be an interesting piece of video because people are going to look at that and say why is he not shooting (laughs) well that's why you know if, if you get 15 20 feet apart the angles are completely different and then they're probably going to see the flip side of that uh when larry does end up the next morning these we stumble into these cows again and they come walking towards us and uh 
the same bull. You can tell which bull is the same bull because he's got this is a common thing I see in Arizona and New Mexico more than anywhere else is his driver's side brow tine drops down over his nose. <laughs> I mean, it's really long. You know how sometimes I just look like they're limp-wristed or lazy yeah. or whatever? It just like, boop. So we could tell it was the same bull. <clears throat> and again, same thing. We got pin tires off to the side. Larry and I, and we're like ready to shoot. And Ty's like, no, I, I don't have one. And, and then uh, Ty's like, okay, he's clear. And just as I say to Larry, hey, uh, watch out, you know, make sure there's no cow behind him. Ty starts to say something like, no, don't shoot now. And, well, from where Larry and I was, the cow is off behind and to the left. Well, Larry shoots and just drops that thing. He hit it right where the neck it meets the shoulders and uh i'm assuming you're you're then talking looking, about the bull he shot and dropped the bull yeah exactly <laughs> uh and the cows all look around like what happened and then you know how they run off kind of no big deal uh well i've looked at the footage and now the audience is gonna because from ty's angle it doesn't look like that that bull had cleared the cow so <laughs> oh well hey, what do you do <laughs> yeah. yeah uncle larry was happy he was he was just oh and this is and people who know uncle larry that he's kind of a a character uh i told ty i said if he shoots that bull uh i'm gonna tell him that he shot a cow <laughs> because three oh. years ago in wyoming he got <clears throat> he shot the wrong bull but you know the cameras were on one and he shot a different one and I thought that'd be a funny joke. So the bull hits the ground and Larry and I are hugging and I'm like, you want to know the bad news? He's like, what? I said, you shot a cow. <laughs> and he just, <laughs> after a string of expletives, he's like, I just ruined your entire platform. Blah, blah. <laughs> and I look at Ty and Ty's like, you can't do this to him. I'm like, no, Larry, I'm just kidding you. You didn't. You dropped that bull. And, uh, I shouldn't have done that. He yeah, took it man. so seriously. I, I felt bad. But See, I'm, okay pulling, I'm uh, okay pulling pranks like that with Donnie because, you know, it's he, he takes yeah. it okay. And he's pretty patient and calm. And so he'll think through it and he'll be okay. But, mm. man, Uncle Larry's not one you want to get riled up, I'd imagine. No, <laughs> no. But uh, <clears throat> it was a ton of fun, man. He, you know, he's 76. And really the, the, the story of this hunt is about finding excuses of how you can do what you want to do rather than letting there be excuses for why you won't do what you want to do. So Uncle Larry, 76, he's got neuropathy in his feet from 12 years of experimental chemo. He can't hardly walk from, I mean, he can walk, but he he can't feel anything. So anytime I step over a log, I got to turn and point and say, Larry, there's a log right down there. Cause, uh, it's also created a glaucoma effect where he's got really good, uh, vision as long as it's within his field of view. So he's lost a lot of the field of view lower in his eyes. Hmm. So he's got to tilt his head down and look at where he's placing his foot or he'll trip. So 
give him trekking poles. He only fell once on this hunt. I was pretty proud of him because we were walking through a lot of blowdown and dead trees and stuff. Uh, he's had two strokes and a heart attack. And his doctors are like, you know, don't, don't be exerting yourself. Don't this, don't that. Well, the first two days he put six to six and a half miles on chasing elk in the mountains. He lives, he lives at like 12 or 1300 feet down in Scottsdale. We were up at 9,000 feet (laughs) and he was, he was trucking right along. And (laughs) I turned to him. I'm like, how you doing, Larry? You going to make it? Oh yeah. I'm good for at least another hundred yards. He'd say, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and then the day he shot it, uh, we're two miles in and, uh, he packed out all of our gear in his pack while Ty and I each carried a portion of our gear, but a load of meat. Uh, and I, I was so impressed, but it goes to show that if you have the determination, like in, you know, a lot of people will say, Randy, you're one of the most determined bullheaded people I know. I've, res- I, I inherited that trait from my uncle Larry, watching <laughs> him, working for him when I was in college. He just is, if he wants to do something, he's doing it. And so that's kind of the story of this hunt, not necessarily Larry's last bull elk, you know, most likely, but the fact that he had all the excuses of why he should have stayed home or why he shouldn't even apply, but he loves to hunt. It's what he lives for. And we made it work. Yep. So I, I would hope any, anybody who watches that and had some excuse of why they didn't go this year, why they didn't hunt as hard or why they didn't, you know, push it a little more. Hopefully watching uncle Larry push through all this and shoot a nice bull elk. Uh, it serves as motivation or, uh, a way to say, yeah, I could do that. I'm, I'm not going to let the, the excuses get in the way of the motivations that get me to where I want to be. Yeah. So, That's awesome. I, yeah. How, how was, uh, it, did you see a lot of elk other than the 150 in one oh, herd and the bully shot? Uh, yeah. Uh, Arizona, you know, that monsoon, they had the, one of the best monsoon years in decades. There was so much feed. I mean, it was ridiculous. Even in December, you know, it's dried and turned brown, but I could not believe how much feed there was. And yeah, lots of elk, uh, you know, and and the beautiful part about Arizona, most of the elk we saw, I'd say 90% of them were on public land. Yeah. So, and classic late season, right? You see big groups of cows with raghorns and spikes. And then you're going to see bachelor groups of bulls like Bryant. He said that he saw three bulls in the canyon that uh, we were hunting. And as he made a move to get the wind in his favor and drop down into that canyon, he bumped two more that were just off the lip of the canyon. And that's the he ended up shooting one of those two. I mean, classic late season behavior. They're either down in the canyon or they're up in the mountain. And, uh, this one, when you see the footage, I should send it to you. I got a bunch of digiscoping footage. This bull Larry shot is just tearing up the trees. 
you would swear it was September. We heard bugling. This is like November 29th. And there, there's bugling going on. And this guy, he would run around and he'd chase off all the little raghorns. And he'd go over to a tree and just destroy it. Uh, all I can figure is there had to have been one or two cows in there that had cycled back. And somehow it it <laughs> triggered the, the feelings. Yeah. Is uh, he bugling? I, yeah, we one day we knew they were in this timbered pocket below us, but the wind was just wrong. We couldn't go in there, uh, and so we were waiting on them, and we would hear them bugling in there. But you know, how do you sneak into thick timber when you know there's a hundred and twenty, hundred and fifty elk in there, and think you're going to sneak up on them? <laughs> so we were waiting them out, thinking, okay, they're going to come out and feed in this spot where we'd seen them in this on a scouting day and they didn't, they went around a different direction. But that time, that night we were downwind of them. And even in that wind, we could hear bugling. Crazy. <laughs> People are going to think we're nuts, but <laughs> we got the footage to show it. And they're going to say, you weren't there in the you know, end of November. That had to be in the end of September. Well, and it was the earliest snow Arizona ever got, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it was a ton of fun. I, so the late season rifle in Arizona is like the last few days of November. Is there a late yeah, archery? Started, always, yep. Before yeah, or after it, that? It always, before. Uh, so in uh, before Thanksgiving is when the late archery seasons are. And then the Friday after Thanksgiving day is when their late rifle seasons start. And, uh, so, uh, it was fun. Everybody there's in hunting mode, you know, the people you run into the, the other hunters, everybody was great. Uh, it's just, I really enjoy those hunts and, you know, in the, post hunt interview ty was he's asking me some questions and he pointed out he said you know i've been on hunts where you've killed the bull and i've been on hunts where now where someone else killed the bull and you seem like you are way more excited and way more fired up to get them a bull than when you had your own tag <laughs> and i got to thinking about that and i'm like you know this year I got to help a sweepstakes winner shoot his first bull. I got to help Uncle Larry shoot a bull. Yeah, you're probably right. If if the rest of my hunting was just going around helping other people and, and getting them their first elk or their last elk, that'd be good enough for me. Yep. I I, I just I don't know. It's there there's a level of satisfaction that comes with <coughs> excuse me, comes with helping somebody do that. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, sorry, I, if you hear me drinking water, Corey, I'm <laughs> just about drank a full Yeti jar here trying to wash the 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 problems down my throat here. But so uh what, what what's this the deal going on that you guys in Idaho have the world's worst system for selling your non-resident over-the-counter licenses? I've been saying it for three years now. I think the days of over-the-counter non-resident tags in Idaho are over, but they keep yeah. they keep just trying to run it into the ground. It's you know it, you would think that 
three years ago was the first time they completely sold out, I think, of tags on that opening day. Yep. Typically, you have tags left over. Sometimes clear up when season starts, the non-resident over-the-counter first come to serve. Wasn't that the first year that Idaho put non-residents on this region quota kind of thing? No, I think uh, I think they did that the next year. So oh, they, okay. they sold out, and then they went to you know the region. They capped it per region based on how many residents hunted that region the year before. It's a percentage of that. Um, and that okay. just seemed to to create even more demand because there's now less right. supply. They reduced the number of non-resident tags as well. So yeah. the system, you know, it's it, it's always been first come, first serve over the counter. And mm-hmm. when they realized they had a little bit of a problem, they created this waiting room. So an hour right. before the tags go on sale, you can log into your account and you're put in this waiting room and you're assigned a random number, which means they have a lottery system going on that assigns people a random place in line. And then when <laughs> yep. it's your turn, if there's tags available that you want, you get to go in and put that in your cart and purchase it, which in my mind yep. is exactly how a draw works. You're put That's in a draw. You're put right. in a pool. You are assigned a random number whether it's based on no points or the points you have, bonus points or preference points, whatever, you're assigned a random number and then they pull your name out of the hat. And if you applied for certain units and there's tags left, you get one. So I don't see the difference, but they're still calling it a first come first serve over the counter (laughs) non-resident system here. But then to add, you know, insult to injury, they uh, they put all these people in a waiting room, and there were so many people that it crashed the system. So there were people that had, you know, number twelve hundred yeah. in the waiting room. Then the system crashed. They had to log back in, and they got number thirty four thousand. Yep. So it was yeah. It was a <laughs> some guys reported reported on our hunt talk forum that they were at a number when they got when they logged out and logged back in. They were at you know just over forty thousand was the number they were at. Yeah, and what's crazy is there were people at 7.30 at night that were still getting good tags. So I don't know if they took part of the tags and just, you know, put them on hold and wouldn't let them go, and then they released them, you know, on some schedule later. Uh, I know people that came to Idaho, they actually drove to Idaho and stood in line, line. and they were able (laughs) to get them a lot easier than online, so the online system failed but they were able to get them in person. And then something else I, I didn't realize until a little bit before this year is you could have a buddy go stand in line. You know, if there's somebody that lives here, you could have them go mm-hmm. to a, a retail place and physically pick up your tag for you. All they needed was last four of your social and a picture of your driver's license or something. What? Yeah. And so there were a lot of people that had buddies that just went to the store and there was nobody in line. They went in there at you know ten thirty while the system was crashed, and everybody online was pulling their hair out. They walked in and just bought a tag and left with no no issues. So, if, oh my god! If the fishing game doesn't fix the system before next December, uh, I, I just I've been saying it yeah. for three years now. They've got to fix it. If they don't fix it next year, there's something wrong, and they still just keep trying to beat the same dead horse so something has to yeah i i shouldn't say this because i'm not smart enough to confirm 
I don't know enough about technology, but some guys were saying that if you logged in to your account with different IP addresses, that you got assigned a different random number for each login. And so they would just stay logged in with the lowest number. Yeah. And I heard the same thing. Uh, and I tried it last year and it didn't work. I tried logging in on my computer and then tried logging in on my phone and it uh-huh. recognized you already logged in through your account. Okay. You and, know, and it didn't. <clears throat> that must- I heard the same thing from multiple people this year. So there must have been something yeah. changed this year that allowed the same account yeah, to log right. in from a different device and get a different random number. Yeah, well, I'm not smart enough to think about that. This is the first year I ever got a number lower than 14,000. <laughs> and did you get a tag? I did. Excellent. When I showed up, the, the, the unit I was looking for, the archery tag, there were three of them left. Wow. And uh, here's the crazy part. I'm My wife is from the Vegas area. Uh, her brother and sister-in-law still live out in Pahrump. So I meet them for breakfast out in Pahrump. And I'm logged in, right? And I told them, folks, I'm sorry, but you guys wanted to have a breakfast when something really important is happening here. And this is, you know, the whole thing going on uh, for Idaho Tags. Well, they shuffle the deck and right away they say, sorry, you got to wait a half hour. We, we just, we can't figure, you know, we got too many people or something. I don't know. So instead of the 10 o'clock or whatever it was, it became 1030. Well, then they start moving people through, and I'm like, well, in the last 20 minutes, seven people have went through the line. (laughs) I'm number 2,800 and something. Oh, well, then it's on hold for an hour or two. You know, it's like, sorry, the the line has stopped moving while we fix something or while we verify, da-da-da. Well, now I've made an appointment that I'm going to be meeting and greeting at the RMEF thing that's going on down there in Vegas. So I got to drive into Pahrump, which is, or from Pahrump, which is 60 miles. I got my, my computer over here hot spotted to my phone and I'm going through these areas of marginal coverage. I'm like, oh no, don't (laughs) drop me. Don't, don't drop me, please. Well, just as you get to this pass uh, between Pahrump and Vegas, I think it's called like Spring Mountain Spring or Spring Mountain or something, I hit a patch of 5G coverage, and I just locked it up. Man, I pull over in the ditch, and I'm like, I'm just waiting here. And all of a sudden, the line starts moving, and finally, I, I got I got my tag. I, it's the first time ever I've got uh a number where I could get a tag and an alt tag that I wanted since you guys started this new system. So yeah, I've probably used up my one good mulligan for, you know, the last, the next 10 years, but no, well, I, I hope for, for a couple of reasons. One, because there were people that literally spent eight hours online yeah. trying to get a tag to get in there and find out there was nothing left. Uh, the other yeah. thing is it's impossible to plan a hunt with a family member or a friend, you know, right. two people right, can't. Can't, can't apply as a party. They can't, you know, one of them yep. might get at number 1000, the other one might get number a hundred thousand. So the one gets a tag, yeah. the other doesn't, or one gets a tag in a unit and there's no tags left in that unit. So the partner has to get one in another unit. 
it just it it's a it's a nightmare for non-residents. I'm a resident, but I still am frustrated with the system just because it's not you know I, I don't want to say it's not fair, but it's not it efficient at all. No, it, it could be a lot better. And yeah. I get that Idaho residents are like, why do we care? You know, that's not our problem. But we got enough emails <laughs> on the Elk Talk podcast link <laughs> that there were a lot of people who were frustrated based on the emails we got. And and I fully get it. I And when I've read some of the responses, <clears throat> I guess the department is concerned that there would be some tags that go unsold if they went to a draw or something like that, because everyone would only apply for the really good ones. <laughs> well, uh, then, then you put it, the leftovers on sale first come first. Right. Or- <clears throat> yeah. And so that, that doesn't quite jive with me. Or if that's your big concern, say, okay, give the five or 10 units you're interested in or hunt codes and list all 10 of them in your priority. Yeah. And then we'll shuffle the deck. <clears throat> we'll go through everybody. And if one of your 10 still have tags, by the time we get to you, we'll award it to you. Uh, that way. I mean, you think about 40,000 people wasting, and I'm going to say wasting because it was a waste of four or five hours for me from yeah. the standpoint of I could have been doing something else. That, that's just, <laughs> it's hard in today's world of technology. It's like, really? Yeah. Come on. Well, and it's, it's like the draws. You know, Wyoming is a non-resident. They conduct the draw, you know, the deadline's January 31st or whatever. And you don't find out until, I think, the end of May. Yep, and there, there's no reason for that. I mean, there really no. is no reason for it to take four months. And if they want to wait no. until the herd counts come out in the 1st mm-hmm. of May to be able to determine how many tags are available, then just wait until then to have the draw. And then two weeks later at most, you know, it's an instantaneous thing. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. system. They plug everything in. You apply Everything's automated. It goes through in awards. And yeah, there might be some things they have to check on to make sure that you're eligible to have a license or whatever they need yeah. to do. But we're not talking four months worth of anything. Idaho's mm-hmm. able to do their draw when they do the draw. You know, and they're the, <laughs> we see they're one of the states that has the worst technology and they still <laughs> are able to turn it around in three weeks for the most part. So it's, yeah. uh, there, there's technology out there that just, it really needs to be streamlined for not just Idaho, but a lot of states. You want to know what I have heard from Wyoming, why they still kept that date, even though they, because they used to draw in February. Yeah. Even before the counts. Yeah. Well, I understand why they wanted to move the draw date till after the counts. That makes full sense. But the reason that they kept the application deadline for non-residents in January was pressure from the Outfitter Association because if you think about it with Outfitters, the Montana Outfitters are competing against the Wyoming Outfitters who compete against the Colorado Outfitters for that pool of non-resident money. And by having the first draw, the first deadline, Wyoming kind of allows their Outfitters to snab some of that and lock people up <laughs> because a lot of people are like, well, I'm not going to apply in three or four States with three or four different outfitters. Okay. I'm going with you True. Hopefully I draw. So it gives their, uh, 
their outfitters a competitive advantage over outfitters from other states is what i've been told and that makes sense other than the i mean it makes sense that that would that would be the case especially Mm -hmm. since you know the outfitters lobbied in the state of wyoming to make it illegal for hunters to hunt in the wilderness unless they use them it it just it baffles (laughs) me that the the outfitters and guides in any state have that much sway over the department. I mean, the, the revenue that's brought in through a non-resident hunting with an outfitter has to be a fraction of what's brought in from the rest of the non-residents. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's a topic for the political science classes (laughs) to solve. (laughs) Since we're on Wyoming. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, we're coming up on, legislative season again here so i'm sure we're going to hear all sorts of stuff from the political science classes yeah i looked last week when i was bedridden montana's legislative session starts i think january 4th or 5th and here we meet every two years for 90 days and the public wishes we met every 90 years for two days (laughs) uh but that's not how it works. So we're stuck with a bunch of folks convene in Helena, and we haven't even seen them all yet. There were almost 200 bills related to fishing game issues Wow! already on the docket. Insane. Can you imagine how bad things must be in Montana that we need 200 legislative changes? Man. And, uh... I, I, I hope people realize that even though I'm talking about Montana or you might talk about Idaho, the same thing is going on in your state. You need to tap into where that, that information is at and be aware of it because if you aren't informed and, and know of it, you don't have a chance to engage. And if you don't engage, you don't have a chance to, to influence it. Yep. So yeah. Leg- legislative session. I say nobody's uh, assets are safe when the legislature is in session. <laughs> so. so where do, where is a place that people can go and find out? Like in Montana. <laughs> yeah. Every legislature has a website. And on that website, there is a list of bills, and you can sort by committee. So most every state has a wildlife committee or a fishing game committee in their legislature. And so you just ask for the list of bills, or you sort and search for the list of bills related to that topic or to that committee. And all of the states have slightly different websites of how it works, but it's pretty easy. Um, some of the states even have a box you can check to say, notify me of any bills that come before this committee. Interesting. So, I know in Idaho, find out, got, yeah. you know, same thing. You can search on the, the government website, but it's a little cumbersome, you know, as far as finding yeah. one if you don't know the bill number. Uh, we have a, it's Idaho Wildlife Federation, and they're mm-hmm. basically a, a nonprofit for that reason to yep. uh, bring anything legislatively in Idaho that relates to hunting and fishing and the outdoors. Uh, you can sign up for an email list there and, and get that. I wasn't sure if yep. there were 
you know, similar organizations every, in every, other states. Yeah, pretty much every state has something like that. Uh, and you're exactly right. That's what they, they really uh, staff up for legislative yeah. season. Um, and I think every state has a, an affiliate of what, you know, your Idaho Wildlife Federation. I know we have one in Montana. I know Wyoming has one. I'm, I'm sure every state has it. So if, if you don't want to go through the headache of, of going to the legislative website, just sign up for the, the email list of one of those groups. And, uh, you this time of year in Montana, you'll get about an email every other day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, guess what's on the docket. Guess Another what's on the, <clears throat> and you scratch your head and you think who came up with this stuff? So, yep. uh, but anyhow, Wyoming, you know, the deadline is January 31st. And, uh, I drew a general tag last year. So I'm down to zero points and I'm fine with that. I, you know, I'm one of those guys anymore that I try to burn points every year. I try to burn all my points every year. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of states won't take them. It's like, hey, I'm you know I'm trying to burn these. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but Wyoming has some changes coming up, and uh, I'm really glad I dropped out of their uh, moose and sheep uh, draw back in 2007 when they cranked the price up for a preference point from like five bucks to 75 bucks i'm like you know what i'm a tightwad account and i'm out of here i'm leaving my seven points on the table or whatever because now uh they did pa pass a bill <clears throat> that wyoming has always been super generous to non-residents but for moose goat sheep bison and if they ever have grizzly bear hunts instead of 25 percent going to non-residents only 10 percent are going to non-residents so that's a huge change so that's the people huge. who you think of someone who's got 20 some points they're like oh yeah i could draw that tag but i really want this one now it might they may not even have enough points to draw the the hunt they passed up three or four years ago so <clears throat> that's a pretty big change uh but if i have a warning to anybody as someone who's been doing this multi-state game for 27 or 28 years just know that these systems are going to change that's why i don't sit around and try to collect points my points today are worth more they're going to be than than they're going to be worth tomorrow or next year or next year or the following you know they're never going to be worth more than they are this year. Yep. That's just a fact. And these states, if you're in these systems for more than 10 years, I can guarantee you what you the system you started out in is going to get changed by the time you burn 10 or more <laughs> points. Yep. That that's just how it is. And you know, I I get that some people are like, well, Randy, and you're you're in a different position, blah blah blah. You okay? I get that. What I'm saying is, if you want any benefit from my experience of having done this for almost three decades, don't don't sit on points that you could burn on a good hunt this year. I mean, don't go throw your points away on some. You know, don't burn 15 points on a hunt that only takes one point. But, but find if you one could that go takes hunt 15 points year, and go hunt. Right. Because here's what 
is that Wyoming has a wildlife task force and uh, they've been meeting all of 2022. And with the rumblings that started coming out of that task force last winter, uh, there was a proposal to go to 90-10 on deer, elk, and antelope. Yep. You think about that. Yeah. Uh, that'd be huge for we, non-residents because right now we get 16% of the non-resident or of the limited entry tags. We have a cap of 7,250 total tags. So you go from 16% down to 10% on limited entry. You think about what that would do to point creep. Yeah. Even on and the general, deer and animal, think about the general right. license for a non-resident they're they're pretty liberal with that, and it's taken yeah. three or four points now to draw that with the special. They go to yep. from sixteen to ten. It's almost going to double the number of points it takes to draw a tag because they're cutting the tags almost in half. Yeah. So I saw the writing on the wall on that, and I for me and my crew and our sweepstakes winner had a bunch of Wyoming points for. You know, my son Matthew had max deer points. I said, you know what, folks, we are going to burn these Wyoming points. I I don't know what's coming, but another part of history that I might be able to add to the benefit of people is if a state starts talking about a change, <laughs> you can bet in the next three, four or five years, that change will, will happen. Yep. So it's kind of like in the stock market, right? They say buy on the rumor, sell on the news. Well, oh, <laughs> I burn points on cash, the rumor. Cash you know, in points I, on the rumor. <laughs> and uh, so I we did that, and I don't regret it at all. You know, maybe we could have, like Matthew burned 13 pronghorn points. Maybe he could have got a, a better, quote unquote, better unit. But you know what? I wasn't going to, I, I told him, you can take that chance if you want, but I'd suggest against it. And he's like, no, I just want to go. So off we went. Uh, same with our sweepstakes winner. You know, he probably was two points over what he needed for the hunt that he drew. But when he and I were talking, I said, Sean, you know, in the next couple of years, I think some things are going to change in Wyoming. And he's like, let's burn them. Let's go. I'm like, okay. And he drew. <clears throat> and... Some people are like, well, why would he burn? You know, in the video, we said he burned 12 points. They're like, well, why did he burn 12 points for a hunt out there or whatever? Uh, well, because he wanted to go. And he, he realized that sitting on points, you know, we talk about inflation, right, today. Yeah. Well, if you want to see inflation affecting your points, <laughs> every time one of these states changes the rule, it usually isn't to the, your benefit. It usually is, as a non-resident, it's usually going to have a big inflation effect on your point. So <clears throat> that's that's what I've, I mean, I've released a video on it. And maybe I was overly dramatic by saying burn your points now in Colorado and Wyoming. Uh, those were the two states I really focused on. Uh, but the task force did pass a huge price increase for the special tags starting in 2024 now it needs legislative <laughs> approval but when you say history, a huge price they already went from eight hundred dollars i know to almost 1400 a couple years ago what what could it be that yeah. is huge now it's going to be 1900 and something <laughs> yeah 
So it's passed the task force and now it all it you know, anything that passes that task force pretty much passes the legislature. So you're looking at nineteen hundred dollars for a general elk tag in Wyoming in the, special draw. In the special draw. Right. So what do you think is gonna happen to the regular draw mm-hmm. in twenty twenty four when that happens? Well, here's the other you thing. We're talking, we're, we're talking Wyoming and the effects that these changes mm-hmm. are going to have on non-residents in Wyoming in the special. Well, yep. that's going to affect the regular, but it's going to trickle yep. to other states too. You you go from mm-hmm. 16% right. to 10% in <clears throat> Wyoming. Now there's a whole bunch of hunters who aren't drawing tags there who are looking for other states. So it's going to make the Idaho debacle even worse. It's going to make Colorado over the counter to the point where they throw their hands up and say, we're going to a draw for non-residents. I mean, the writing is yep. on the wall here that, you know, non-residents are, are not the recipients of good news when it comes to elk hunting opportunities right no, now. No. And, you know, I don't know how many times we have said this on the podcast. Your home state of Idaho has been the fastest growing state in the Rocky Mountains for the last, I don't know, eight or ten years. And you guys, three or four years ago, said, hey, we need to focus on our residents, so we're going to put non-residents on a cap. And that's what you guys did for deer and and elk, uh, you know, a regional cap or whatever, zones or whatever. Well, Colorado this year, this summer, had focus groups to look at the same thing. Well... They ended up not passing any of that. Yeah. Look at how much Colorado's population has increased. Yep. And the residents there, and all of us, if we live there, I don't care who you are, if you lived in one of those states that are seeing all of this increase in resident pressure, you're going to demand some changes. And those changes slide downhill and impact the non-resident. I wish... That wasn't the case, but that is just a reality we face. So the reason I added Colorado to the video I published last week was when they start holding focus groups and they start talking about this stuff, if I could go to Vegas and put money (laughs) on whether or not Colorado will be changing the draw system for non-residents in the next five years, I would take every bit of cash in my pocket and lay it down on the side of the bet that says, yes, they will change in the next five years. Yeah. It's like you said, you start hearing rumors and it's going to happen. And Colorado, I mean, you see it, you hear from the residents there that complain, the non-residents that go there, like we can't even find a place to park at trailheads. It's overcrowded, mm-hmm. and people are realizing mm-hmm. that, and now they're having focus groups to find a solution. There's going to be changes that come that are going to restrict non-residents first. You know, that, that's right. non-residents going to be the first ones to lose out. And I think, you know, the, the point to all this is there's a lot of doom and gloom talk. You know, you and I are, are, are trying to mm-hmm. warn people that there's a lot of change coming that's going to take away opportunity the answer is not to say don't take away opportunity. We we can't we're at a point where we can't have that as a solution. So what is the solution? And it's what you know you have always 
talked about. We've got to build that bigger pie and that's going to take time. And unfortunately, you know, we're, we're hoping to get ahead of that curve a little bit here, but we're already behind it. And if we wait until all these changes take place and then we say, well, now we got to start trying to build a bigger pie. It's too late. There's, there's a gap there that just, Mm -hmm. we're going to fall off. Yep. And so we've got to get involved now and figure out those ways of how do we build a bigger pie? How do we create more opportunity? How do we expand? You know, I saw Virginia had their first elk hunt this year, and I think mm-hmm. there were five or six tags that were were filled on that. And you look at it, and it's like it's that's not even a drop in the bucket. That's not going to make a difference. Right. But there are things yep. we as sportsmen can do to help fast track that to exponentially increase those opportunities, not necessarily in Virginia, but even in places like Idaho and Colorado, whether it's by, you know, access, whether it's by populations, you know, whatever it is, there are things we can do and it seems overwhelming. But at this point, we're going to have to do some hard work. We're going to have to do some overwhelming things to be able to make sure that, you know, like you always say, we're a non-resident in 49 states and I don't yep. want to be isolated just to hunting in Idaho because, quite frankly, the hunting here is is not that great. And, you know, my wife will ask, why Why do you need a tag in Montana? Why do you need a tag in Wyoming? Aren't there elk here? And it's like, yeah, there are, but this is not the number one place on my list to, to hunt elk. And, yeah. you know, I want to be a non-resident hunter in multiple other states for several more years. And I'm concerned about about that direction. So we've got to be involved, whether it's through the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, a state organization, something. We have to be thinking creatively. We have to be thinking outside the box. And we have to take action. Hunters are just, historically, we're all procrastinators. And when it comes to affecting change, when it comes to hunting or the outdoors, uh, we, we just seem to stand on the sidelines until it's too late. And this is this is big enough here that we have to get involved and we have to make some changes that will impact the yep. future of hunting in a positive way. Because right now, the changes that are coming are, are not positive. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I'm going to be proven wrong when it comes to Wyoming and Colorado. Because the, the 90-10 split for deer elk and pronghorn in wyoming didn't pass the committee the task force yeah but that does not prevent a legislator from crafting a bill to do just that yep and i've seen that many times where states put together a council or a you know a committee and a committee comes up with certain suggestions and everyone thinks, okay, that's what we get to deal with. And then when it goes to their legislature for approval, one of the things that got defeated at the committee level get thrown back in there. My point in all this is, and I don't have it all figured out, but I've been doing this a long time, is the trends we are seeing in the topics that are being discussed as Western states have huge population increases is the residents of those states are demanding a bigger portion of the pie and i i other you know there there's going to be all kinds of folks who say well newberg you're part of the problem you know you showed people how easy it was or you could this you could that 
I, I share information because I want people to go and do this. I want them to be vested in this process. I want them to be connected to these public lands, whether they live in Wisconsin or West Virginia or Wyoming. I, so yeah, I've, I've shared a lot of information about how to do this, but this pressure is coming from the resident side. It's coming from the fact that their numbers in these states are growing so fast that they're saying, look, this is not, this, this isn't what I want. I want change. And, you know, I can't do anything about what is changing on the resident side of these states. And anyone who thinks that somehow Montana and Idaho and Colorado and Utah and Nevada are going to somehow have shrinking populations, it's not. I mean, it just, it isn't. So, and, you know, when you talk about building a bigger pie, really we're talking about a pie of accessible elk or deer or whatever. There's a lot of places where we have abundant numbers of, say, elk that aren't accessible to the public. Well, we're going to have to think of creative ways to grant access to those elk. And I know instantly people are like, well, that'll never happen. And maybe it won't. But if we say it'll never happen, I can assure you, you're correct. It would (laughs) never happen then. So, you know, if there's already in Montana, they say we have 150,000 elk. And I've heard all kinds of numbers. I don't know how many of those elk are unaccessible lands. You know, if it's half, if it's two thirds or one third, I don't know. But if we came up with creative ways to work with the systems or develop new systems that gave us access to some of the elk that are currently inaccessible, that makes the pie bigger. That provides more opportunity. Yep. It lessens the pressure to say, oh, let's go hammer the non-resident. And I'm on board with whatever <laughs> we got to do to make the pie of accessible wildlife bigger and that's why you and i and a lot of people we we work with are so huge on access because all the elk in the world if they're inaccessible really doesn't do us that much good and that's where the access component is absolutely critical you look at fish and game you know counts in the winter where are they doing these counts at they're down low they're in winter range which now there's a lot higher percentage of winter range that is on private mm-hmm. land than on public land. Yep. And I've noticed there, there's a herd of elk that I have, I've literally hunted this herd of elk since 1997. And mm-hmm. I've seen, I've seen it in the late nineties, early two thousands. There were elk everywhere up high, you know, we're talking 65 to 7,500 feet in elevation. They were just there in September and multiple bulls in multiple pockets. You could go from ridge to ridge and get bulls to bugle. And then wolves started showing up and the wolves definitely affected the population for the first few years. That's a fact. I mean, that's, they can say the numbers didn't fluctuate, you know, here, there, they got pushed (laughs) to different areas. They hammered the elk for a few years. And because those wolves are up there where the elk populations are high, the elk are going to, they're smart. They're like, okay, if we go mm-hmm. down lower, there's more people down there. And maybe we'll just stay down there in the summer instead of going up higher. So they got conditioned to 
changing their habits, changing where they where they historically have been, which then concentrates the hunters. And it concentrates the hunters around these areas where they used to be able to spread out because there were elk in all these pockets. Now the elk are concentrated, whether they're staying on private or just lower, closer to private. Now the hunters concentrate there and the elk move down and stay on the private down low. And then you have a drought where there's no water up high and the only water is in the creek bottoms down low on the private. And the elk are like, forget it. We're not leaving here. And I saw it this year. (laughs) This herd of elk that historically was at 65 to 7,500 feet in elevation has slowly got pushed down to where they're now at 5,000 feet in elevation and they stay there year round. They winter there. They stay there in the summer. They have their calves. The bulls don't even go all the way up high. They might go up on a ridge at 55 or 6,000 feet, still either on private or within 200 yards of private. So it's an easy transition for them. And you can go up at that 6,500 to 7,500 feet in elevation and you could spend all summer hiking around up there and be lucky to see two or three elk tracks. And the the elk herds down on that private are incredible. It's so frustrating to drive through there and stop in September and hear 12 or 15 bulls in the same field bugling and going crazy and cows running everywhere. And the nearest public land is five miles away and those elk will never go on that public land again. Yeah. Uh, And I don't care whether it's, nature's predators or human predators elk are smart and they respond and move to that pressure yep and uh that ends up being private land in a lot of instances uh, or maybe it's public land that's not accessible <clears throat> so we there's a ton of opportunities none of them are easy so that's why we as hunters got to put our shoulder to the wheel we got to take our time we got to take you know, we got to volunteer, we got to contribute and we got to solve these problems and they don't get solved by going out on Facebook and complaining <laughs> about it or hanging out down at the coffee shop or the bar and complaining about it. So or even know, by it, hosting so, a podcast and complaining about it, which you and I no. are doing. We <laughs> Hopefully yeah. this just no, helps spread awareness and, and gets us all activated because we have taken yeah. from hunting for so long. You know, it's just, it's been something we've Mm -hmm. taken and we've taken it for granted and we haven't given back and we're like, well, my license, you know, I, I buy a hunting license for $35 in Idaho every year. That's, that's my right to hunt. Well, yeah, that, that does provide you with the legal right to hunt, but it doesn't guarantee that there's going to be animals there that we have to find ways to give back. We take every year, we have to start giving back and it, you know, we have to give more than we take if we want there to be perpetual increases yeah and you know our wildlife is competing with so many other things for space for habitat uh and you know you look at the studies coming out of colorado about how year-round recreation backcountry you know hiking and camping and and mountain biking and all the other things that happen in the critical period of lactation and that is really having a huge impact on the herds in Colorado that have been studied. So well, we have a lot of activities going on that truly are consumptive uses. You know, people always want to say hunting is the consumptive use of wildlife. No. If you are consuming their space, their their habitat, their, their uh, needs 
or, or impairing their needs for the best vegetation on that landscape on that day, you are a consumptive user of habitat. That's just how it is. And so a cow elk that now has a 60% increase in its caloric demands during lactation, they need to be on the best, absolute best forage possible. And we can't have a mountain bike race going on at that time or whatever backcountry thing it might be that's going to displace that elk to something that's very marginal and she's not getting the nutrition she needs. Yeah. Because if she doesn't, that calf is going to be a much lighter weight going into winter and it has a lower likelihood of surviving. She's going to go into winter at a much lower rate. So her pregnancy rate, the likelihood of a pregnancy gets much lower. So it, I, my point of throwing that out there is this is really complicated stuff. And if we think we're going to solve it with simple solutions, and I have news for some of these folks who say, well, we'll just keep hammering the non-residents. Well, okay. You can only do that for so far. Yeah. You know, pretty soon you got to start addressing these other issues. And the sooner we address all these issues that build a bigger pie or make a more accessible uh, pie, that's where we will realize long-term progress. Yep. But, yeah, yeah. I better get <laughs> off my soapbox. Or people uh, are going to be like, Newberg, you're, you've lost your mind, dude. But, anyhow, if you're interested in Wyoming or Colorado, be paying attention because things will be changing in the next, I don't know, one year to five years. And here's the other crazy part. In Wyoming last year, only 20% of the non-residents who have some level of points in Wyoming, only 20% of them actually applied for a tag. Yeah. The other 80% are buying points. And there are people who've been buying points for 12, 15. I think now the max in Wyoming is 17. And if you go to Colorado, less than 50% of the non-residents who have points for elk actually apply for a tag. And if you look, you want to look at stacks of points, the number of non-residents in Colorado who have 20 or more points is crazy. Yeah. And I'm about, that. I, I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe some people are just point collectors. I, I, I don't know. Uh, Utah. Okay. Utah just, adopted a whole new elk plan for 2023. They're going to change how they allocate the rifle tags between early rifle mid-season and late season. So that's going to be a big change. Uh, and it affects both residents and non-residents. But again, you have all these people in Utah with 20, 24, 26 points who are non-residents who don't even apply. So if you're just focusing on the draw odds, you're only looking at less than half of the people who have points. And every time a change, you know, people get wind of a change, a lot of those, I call them point buyers, they're like, huh, I might want to be burn these points this year. Yeah. So from that, I expect 
that in Wyoming in 2023 and 2024, we're going to see some pretty big point creep just because people are smart. You know, they know of these changes and the smart ones are like, all right, now's the time. And they pulled the trigger. And so a little, a little positive news, a little positive news in that. Idaho and New Mexico yeah. don't have points. Let's keep it that there. You way. go. You know, we right. still have opportunities without worrying about point creep. Yeah, there's more people in the right. pool, and the odds might be lower, but we still have a chance in those states. And yes, you, know, you look at right. something like Colorado, where it's preference points. When this happens, yeah, when non-resident general tags go to a draw, and they will there. That's it's going to happen. It's not going to be over the counter for much longer. When it goes to a draw there, everything's limited. The general over-the-counter units are now a draw, and point creep is going to be a bigger reality because it's going to take points. You're going to have to spend points to get an over-the-counter tag now, and people that have 17, 18 points aren't going to spend that on an over-the-counter tag. It's just it's going to creep up, so you're going to see it – in every state where it's going to become harder and harder to draw even these lower, you know, draw odd or higher draw odd tags. So places like Idaho and New Mexico are going to get even more active, you know, odds are going to go down there, but we still have a chance there. And if we could somehow get rid of points in every state, you know, the, the playing field on a general landscape would would be better because there are opportunities going to be lost in a lot of states for new hunters, especially non-resident hunters. Yeah. Well, a lot of people think I'm a fan of point systems. I hate them. (laughs) I've hated them since they started them, but they're a reality of the landscape. And that's why I've always spent so much time trying to give information about how these systems work. I, I, I don't have the influence to remove point systems. If I was king for a day, there would not be a point system in any state. And I'm talking to you folks in New Mexico, Idaho, and Alaska. You've held on and you have it right. Don't succumb to the old gray-haired guy who's complaining, well, I didn't draw my tag this year. I'm going to talk to my legislator. We need some points here. (laughs) Because once you start down a point system, all of a sudden, you know, the left-handed accountants from Bozeman, Montana, all of a sudden get some sort of preference. And then the and all the whatever from this group gets some benefit or preference. It, It just don't even go there. Yep. In those three states. And then and if you have $1,900 to drop on an elk license, you can get special preference. As in Wyoming. In Wyoming. Yep. You get yeah, better draws because you're willing to drop two grand on an elk tag, which is crazy to me. Nevada, yeah. which probably has some of the best elk hunting, obviously not very many tags for non-residents, but we're talking you have a good chance of finding a trophy bowl in, in Nevada they charge a thousand dollars, and that seems outrageous. But you, you know, if you pay a thousand dollars and get one of those tags, there's chances you're going to yeah. put a, a pretty good bull on the ground. Arizona, what's Arizona? It's like six hundred. Yeah, that's is that with the license? That's just the tag. That's just the tag. The yeah. license, a non-refundable, non-resident license, or I think one hundred and fifty. Yeah, something. yeah. 
Well, you're still, you know, you're in Arizona, land of giant bulls, and, you know, you're paying $750, $780, whatever it is for license and tag there. Wyoming, for a general license, if you want to put in in the special and have better draw odds, you're still paying two grand for a tag there if that goes through. Yep. And it's well, very, it's most likely going through starting to. in 2024. Yeah. And all they're yeah. doing is saying, how high can we raise this and keep people in the pool? You know, and that's, yeah, that's business. Well, that, that, that proposal, that big fee increase was pushed by, by Wyoming Outfitters and Guides Association. Yeah. And, they played smart politics. They said, well, we're not going to touch the resident costs, so we won't get resistance from residents. But if we can create this really expensive pool, maybe we'll price out the non-guided client because our clients are, you know, they they have more resources. Yep. That's really, that's the motivation or the, the rationale behind what Wyoming did. So. I, I know people with a lot of points listening to this are going to be like, hey, Newberg, I don't want to get rid of this point system. I've been in it for, you know, 20 years. I get that. I've got 20 plus points for sheep in most states. I got, I think, 24 pronghorn points in uh, Utah. I got match points for sheep in Montana. I'd give them all back. I, if, if they said, we're getting rid of point systems in all these states, I'd be writing letters of support, even with all these points I have. My son, he probably has more points than I do for species. I don't give a dang, you know. <laughs> Once you start down this point process, you really, it, it's like Pandora's box. It's like, a, okay, we're, it's the point of no return. And I, I don't know how states are going to, ever handle it or maybe the states just say look we're making a pot full of money selling points and i've never figured out how to extract from it so i've accepted it as a reality of western hunting and that's why i do videos uh and bonus podcasts about each of the systems because we can dislike it we can not want it but that's the system in place so you better understand how it works. That's, <laughs> I know how else to say it. It just is what it is. Yep. So, but so uh, can uh, if you were king for a day, Corey, what would uh, I mean? What would it be if the under if if it was the Corey Jacobson administration right now? You got any magic solutions? Yeah, I would. Uh, I would tax the general public. Uh, probably five to 10 acres of public land that would become private. And I would just go sit in the middle of it and not worry about it anymore. (laughs) Probably not popular enough to get me voted as King. So don't have to worry about that. But Uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, if I was King for a day and we're looking at wildlife solutions here, there would have to be big sweeping changes. Um, point yeah. systems, you know, obviously no. would be first thing. We'd have to find ways to level playing fields. And I don't mean, you know, everything has to be fair for uh, everybody, but there just has to be uh, a, and it's hard, you know, trying to generalize management of wildlife. You can't even manage wildlife the same two miles down the road from where I live as, as what you do right no. here, because 
it's different habitat, different needs, different availabilities, you know, all these things. So it's a, it's an ugly, complicated job. But with that being said, get rid of the government and the, the money involvement in managing wildlife because it just clouds everything. And, you know, the wildlife lose, the sportsmen's lose, and it's not a, not yeah, a good situation right now. <clears throat> well, I, I see these trends where states are adopting policies that create differences based on someone's financial means. Yep. And I, I just don't like that <clears throat> because that that's not how our system evolved. Our system evolved from a grassroots hunting world, regardless of, you know, whether you had money or don't, if it was about money, I wouldn't be a hunter because growing up living in a trailer house in a little logging town when I was 12 years old, I wouldn't have had the money to hunt. And when I see these states, whether it's price increases, whether it's carving out pools for this or carving out pools for that, it just goes against the grain of who I am. And I think these states and we as a collective hunting community better start paying attention to that. Because if we disenfranchise the rank and file average person through these little trick things to give benefit to folks who can afford more, Someday we're going to be standing around and we aren't going to have that grassroots people that we need. And uh, I don't know, maybe some people don't really care. Well, I, I do. think for, for a long time, you know, we, we justified things like auction tags and said, you know, uh, yeah. somebody pays $30,000 for this tag. <laughs> it goes into the pool that's used to manage, to research, to conserve you know this species and we we were okay with it and then they said well yeah. we aren't just going to take one tag from the pool we're going to take 10 tags and do that so now we have three hundred thousand dollars going into this and we're like well yeah i mean it makes sense you know we can't get that much money any other way but you have a you have a finite number of tags and they start seeing dollars and pretty soon it's like well you know, we need new trucks. We need to pay our people more to, to do this management. We need organizations. We need to pay leads of organizations to help us spread the word on this system. And pretty soon it's, it's, it's money driven. I mean, it really is. And they're looking at it saying, well, there's a hundred tags. We're giving 10 of them away right now. If we did 50, there would still be 50 tags for the general public, but now we'd have $5 million that we could use to, to manage wildlife, to do all these things. And when you're looking at it from a money perspective and looking for the easiest money, the the regular Mm -hmm. guy is going to lose every time. Yeah. So, you know, and, you know, in Idaho, for example, they've looked at, you know, are you willing to pay $10 more a year for a license? And hunters, are saying, no, we don't want an increase. We just had an increase four yeah. years ago. Why would we want an increase? <clears throat> Pay the extra $10 rather than losing opportunity to, because opportunity, you know, if we're willing to pay for it a little bit more, spread out over the whole population of regular hunters, it's going to benefit hunters and wildlife way more than trying to, you know, turn it into a money game where we start losing opportunity and people that have the, yeah. the resources are able to play the game. 
Yep. Well, Corey, I'm sorry that well, this has kind of been a downer one. It's not the way I wanted to wrap up a podcast just before Christmas, but I promise <laughs> you I'll go through emails next podcast that are more uplifting. But the emails we received in the last two weeks have been pretty gloomy. Especially so, after the anger. Idaho over-the-counter, yeah. first-come-first-serve yeah. lottery <clears throat> system debacle. Yeah. So, anyhow, I'm going to let you go. Okay. And thank everyone for listening. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, we, need to, we need to sneak another one of these in and uh, make mm-hmm. up for some lost time. So we'll follow yeah, this we'll one up that. with it'll be all positive news in the next one. All optimistic <laughs> experiences <laughs> and adventures and encounters and the good sunshine stuff. and buttercups. That's right. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here, Corey. Yeah. Hope thanks, you have man. a great day. You too. Bye.